Heavenly Father, we want to know you more. Um, Help us to understand your word as we dig into this passage in Isaiah today. Amen. Amen. Hi, I'm Viv. Um, We'll be reading from Isaiah chapter 25, verses 1 to 9. So if you've got that up, pull it up in your Bibles, or you can follow it on the screen. Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name. For in perfect faithfulness, you have done wonderful things, things planned long ago. You have made the city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a ruin, the foreigners' stronghold a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will honour you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against a wall and like the heat of the desert. You silence the uproar of foreigners as heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud so the song of the ruthless is stilled. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of, food, of, of rich food for all peoples, of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Great to see you here at the EU public meeting. Well, who's looking forward to Easter weekend? Indeed. Only a few hours away. What's Easter about? Well, it's about chocolate, right? It's about chocolate. It's about bilbies. Chocolate bilbies. It's about Easter bunnies. It's about having a break from your studies, right? Having a couple of days off, maybe enjoying your mid-semester break, catching up maybe on some of the readings you've never got around to doing. (laughs) No, what's Easter really about? It is, after all, a Christian festival, Christian celebration. What's Easter really about? It's about two things. It's about judgment and it's about singing. Easter is about judgment and about singing. Now, how am I going to show you that? Well, we're looking at this section of the Old Testament book of Isaiah. We've been looking at that over the last four weeks in the EU public meetings under the general theme of God uncovered. That is, when we read God's Old Testament word, he reveals himself to us. It's his self-revelation so that we might know his character, might know his plans, his purposes, his heart. And that's what we've been seeing as we've looked at this book of Isaiah over these last couple of weeks. And today we come to a particular section of the book of Isaiah from chapter 13 through to chapter 27. So I'm going to cover a fair bit of track in the next 30 minutes or so, right? But we're going to look at this section and I'm going to sort of try to map out for you what's in that section 
the structure of it. I'm then going to map out some of the key themes through that section, how they track through. And I'm going to then show you how I think that actually sheds genuine light on what Easter is about in terms of judgment and singing. That's where we're going. So it'd be helpful if you could open up a Bible. If you've got one in front of you, that'd be super useful. Or maybe look on with the person next to you, call it up on your phone. Isaiah chapter 13 through to chapter 27 is where we're going. But we are going to be doing a bit of, a bit of flipping through different sections of this so as I can try to illustrate different things to you uh, and make sense of what we read here in this part of God's Word. So Isaiah chapter 13 through to 27, let me just outline the structure for you. Two, two main parts. Isaiah 13 through to chapter 23 is a series of prophecies or oracles against a whole bunch of nations in the 8th century BC. So it's a series of prophecies against a whole bunch of nations. We'll come back to that in a moment. And then chapter 24 through to chapter 27, the vision or the horizon suddenly expands. It expands beyond the nations just around Judah, who's at the centre of Isaiah's book. It expands out to encompass the whole world. And it also expands out beyond the 8th century in that particular moment in time. It expands out to reveal God's plans and purposes for the whole world for all time. So we start locally and then it gets global. God goes global is what I've called this sort of talk. So that's sort of how the structure of the chapters work, right? So what we see is, uh, if you start out in chapters 13 through to 23, a series of prophecies uh, directed to all the nations who are around Judah and the capital city of Judah, Jerusalem. So if you've got your Bible there, let's flick through. Let's see some of these prophecies against the nations. Now, these prophecies, I take it, have been arranged in a deliberate order. They're not random. We know that the whole book of Isaiah has been fairly deliberately arranged. Isaiah told us right in the beginning of chapter 1 of the book that he was a prophet of the one true living God for the period of uh, the reign of four different kings of Judah, probably about 40 years worth of prophecy. So different times he received different words from God, prophecies that he then passed on to the people. And they've been deliberately then collated and arranged in a particular order. We know that because the first couple of prophecies at the beginning of the book are general. They sort of cover the big themes that run throughout all the prophecies and you don't meet Isaiah himself till chapter 6 when he seems to receive his initial commissioning from the one true living God. So the prophecies he received over 40 years have then been deliberately collated together and arranged so that we might have this final record of his prophecies. And it seems that here in these prophecies against these nations, there's also been some de deliberate placement of the prophecies. We're not sure exactly when he received each one. Sometimes we're told, sometimes we're not. But they've been arranged here into a deliberate order. So we're going to try to perceive what that order is, is saying to us, what's significant about that order as well. The first prophecy there, you'll notice in chapter 13, is against Babylon. Now I'm going to draw a map. This is not a Google map, this is a Rowan map. And Rowan maps won't get you where you want to go geographically, but Rowan maps hopefully will help you understand the bigger picture beyond mere geography, right? Um, the first prophecy is against Babylon. Where was Babylon? Babylon was over here in the east. Now, Babylon was not the big superpower of the time. If you've been here over the last couple of weeks, you'll know the answer to who's the big superpower? Assyria. That's right, Assyria up here. 
Assyria is the big superpower. And all the nations around at that time, they were terrified of this superpower because this was an aggressive superpower. Assyria was, was claiming nations and territories for itself. And so all the other nations were trying to work out how do you stand against the might of Assyria. And one option for you was to form some sort of alliance or synergy with Babylon because Babylon, whilst it wasn't the superpower, it was quite strong. And pretty much through the end of the 8th century BC, Babylon was in constant sort of uprise against the power of Assyria. So Babylon is very powerful and potentially a powerful ally of some sort. And as we go on through the book of Isaiah, you'll see that actually one of the kings of Judah, Hezekiah, he he thought Babylon might be a good option, actually, at one particular point and was happy to share things with Babylon that he probably shouldn't have shared. But these prophecies against these nations start with Babylon. Why start with Babylon? Possibly because for Judah, Babylon was a country, a nation in which they could potentially put significant hope. But what is the detail of this prophecy? Well, the prophecy is Babylon will fall. Babylon will fall. So why would you put your hope there if you were Judah? So that's Babylon. Let's move on to see how the rest of the prophecies play out. If you flip through in your Bible or scroll through, you can hopefully see the next heading. The next heading is at the end of chapter 14, verse 24. There's then a prophecy against Assyria, which was the dominant superpower. We've already seen multiple prophecies against Assyria in this book. You move on to chapter 15. There's a prophecy against Moab. Moab is a nation much closer geographically to Judah on its east. There's a prophecy against Moab. Moab will fall. The next prophecy then comes in chapter 17 a prophecy against Damascus. Damascus was the capital city of Aram or Syria. To the north of Judah. The next prophecy, Damascus 2 will fall. The next prophecy then is in chapter 7... Uh, turn the page. I've missed one. Oh, I missed one. Why didn't anyone point that out? Chapter 14, verse 28. Before Moab comes what? Philistines. Philistines are over here. To Judah's west. So you have a prophecy against the Philistines, a prophecy against Moab, a prophecy against Damascus. Now, you know nothing, maybe, of 8th century BC geography, but where do you guess the next country might be. Somewhere to the south and you'd be right. The next two prophecies are against Cush, which is sort of modern day Ethiopia, Somalia, the Sudan and Egypt. Covering all the points of the compass. They're deranged in a deliberate order. You say, who is Judah going to trust in against the might of Assyria? Babylon? Babylon's going to fall. Any of the near neighbours, Moab, the Philistines, Damascus, Cush, no, they're all going to fall. Then it goes through the cycle again. goes back and there's another prophecy against Babylon, just to re-emphasise the point, and covers some of the other nations. Some of the other nations there you can see. 
chapter, where are we up to? Chapter 21 against Babylon. Chapter 22, a prophecy against Jerusalem itself. Because we'll see, as we'll see momentarily, Jerusalem has some of the same problems as these other nations. Then, if you keep going, chapter 22... Oh, I'm skip one again. Chapter 21, verse 11, against Edom and Arabia. Edom was over here. Arabia was over here on the sort of route from Babylon through to Judah. So covering all of these nations, pretty much by this point, you've been told all the nations surrounding Judah, they're all going to fall. So Judah would be foolish to look to any of these other nations to secure its future because the Lord has said, actually, they're all going to fall. You can see a summary statement in chapter 14, if you go back to chapter 14. Chapter 14, verses 26 and 27, a helpful, I think, summary of what this whole section from chapter 13 through to chapter 23 is actually about. And Isaiah is told there, this is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all nations. For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? This is the plan for the whole of the known world that the one true living God has purposed. He's stretched out his hand over all the nations and if he's decided this is what's going to happen, who's going to stop him? And if no one's going to, if no one's going to stop him, then you, Judah, would be foolish to try to form alliances with these nations that in the end are not going to last, that they're going to fall. So this is the picture that this, these chapters paint. What is the big problem? Why are all these nations going to fall? Well, as you read through all these prophecies, and I hope you take some time, maybe over Easter break, mid-Sem break, to read through this section of Isaiah. As you read through these prophecies, there is a common theme. There's a common problem. And that problem is arrogance. The problem is arrogance, pride. Let me show you some places where this becomes apparent. Start in the very first prophecy, chapter 13 against the Babylonians, verses 9 to 11. Chapter 13, verse 9. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. What's the problem here? Pride. Arrogance. They have elevated themselves in their own eyes against the one true living God. How have they made that apparent? By rejecting his word and rejecting his way. They've elevated themselves by saying, we don't care what you say, we don't care what you think is the way to go, we're going to go our own way. That pride, that arrogance, is what the Lord is going to take action against. He's going to humble them. They will fall. And you can see it lived out in a few other places. Go to chapter 14. This is a prophecy particularly against the king of Babylon. 
Jump in at verse 12 of chapter 14. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. Those who see you stare at you. They ponder your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth and made kingdoms tremble? The man who made the world a desert, who overthrew its cities and would not let his captives go home? All the kings of the nations lie in state, each in his own tomb, but you are cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch. You are covered with the slain, with those pierced by the sword, those who descend to the stones of the pit. Like a corpse trampled underfoot, you will not join them in burial, for you have destroyed your land and killed your people. The king of Babylon was full of his own pride. And yet the Lord says, for you're going to be brought low. The same problem of arrogance you can trace through some of the other prophecies there, the the prophecy against Moab, it's even true in God's own people here in Jerusalem. If you move forward to chapter 22, you can see the way this arrogance, this pride played out amongst God's own people living here in Jerusalem. Now remember, the people of Jerusalem were under severe threat at different times from the Assyrians in particular. And this little bit of this prophecy here is looking into the future to show what they will do when they really come under attack. Have a look there in chapter 22 and we'll jump in halfway through verse 8. And you looked in that day to the weapons in the palace of the forest You saw that the city of David had many breaches in its defences. You stored up water in the lower pool. You counted the buildings in Jerusalem and tore down houses to strengthen the wall. You built a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. This all sounds like very sensible military preparations for an attack. Build an extra reservoir so you've got water stored up. Shore up the walls, tear tear down some buildings so you've got more um, resource, building resources. Very sensible. Except that what did they not do? What should God's people, do you think, have done when they're under attack? What's the first thing you would do if you really knew the one true living God? You would what? What do you think you would do? Pray, maybe? (laughs) Call out for help to him, maybe? Have a look at what actually happened. Look at the Lord's complaint against them halfway through verse 11. But you did not look to the one who made it or have regard for the one who planned it long ago. The Lord, the Lord Almighty called you on that day to weep and to wail, to tear out your hair and put on sackcloth. But see, there is joy and revelry slaughtering of cattle and killing of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink, you say, for tomorrow we die. The Lord Almighty has revealed this in my hearing. Till your dying day, this sin will not be atoned for, says the Lord, the Lord Almighty. What are they busy doing? 
They're busy making all their worldly defences, refusing to call out to God. In fact, they'll even, some of them, just saying, well, let's just eat, drink and party on because tomorrow we're dead. They will not call out to him for help. See, that's a different sort of arrogance and pride, isn't it? It's the arrogance and pride that says, no, I will not humble myself and ask you for help. Despite all your promises, despite all your words of encouragement, no, they were elevated in their own eyes against God. And if you jump all the way through to chapter 23, where the very last prophecy plays out, the prophecy against Tyre, which was right up here on the coast. The prophecy of Tyre was not so much a military power, but Tyre was incredibly wealthy because it was a port, trading town. It was a centre of huge amounts of commerce. Very rich place. So if Babylon and Assyria sort of represent military might at the beginning of these series of prophecies, Tyre at the very end sort of represents wealth, commerce, business acumen. Well, no, the same problem is going on here in Tyre. Have a look in chapter 23, verses 7 to 9. Verse 7, Is this your city of revelry, the old, old city whose feet have taken her to settle in far-off lands? Who planned this against Tyre, the bestower of crowns, whose merchants are princes, whose traders are renowned in the earth? The Lord Almighty planned it to bring low the pride of all glory and to humble all who are renowned on the earth. That same same theme of arrogance, pride, that is what binds these prophecies together. This is their problem. But actually, it's also our problem. This is actually the human problem from Adam and Eve through the 8th century BC all the way through to sitting in Carswell here in 2018. This is our problem. We are puffed up in our own estimations against the one true living God. Now, the curious thing about that is you might not be an arrogant person when it comes to other people. You might not be puffed up in your own eyes against other people. You might not think that you're better than the people sitting around you today. You might not think you're particularly better than other people at this university or other people who go to lesser institutions, right? (laughs) I know that you came here just because of the status that comes with Sydney. You might not actually be puffed up in your own eyes when compared to other people. But the curious thing is that every single one of us are puffed up in our own eyes when it comes to the one true living God. And how do I know that? It's because, well, every week I reject his word in some way. Every week I reject in some way his way of being his person in his world. I might not be puffed up when it comes to other people, but but I tell you, when it comes to the one true living God, actually, I am puffed up in my own estimation of myself because I refuse to listen to him. I refuse to let him actually be God over my life. This deep-seated human arrogance and pride is something that we're all living with. We're all guilty of. And God has always said, 
He lifts up the humble and he will oppose the proud. You can see this if you, you flick forward to say 1 Peter chapter 5. If you've got your Bible there, you can flick through to in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 5. One Peter chapter five, halfway through verse five, Peter's writing to Christians, and he says, "All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that He might lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety upon Him, because He cares for you." God has always been in the business of upending the humility scales. Those who humble themselves, he will lift up. If you humble yourself before him, he will lift you up in due time. But those who exalt themselves before him, he will bring low. He's in the business of upending those humility scales. That's what he is going to do here in the 8th century BC. The Lord's response is to bring down the proud. You can see this throughout these chapters. That's why it's prophecies against all of these nations. But remember how I said chapter 13 through 23 was sort of prophecy against these nations and then God sort of goes global, the horizon expands and the themes get bigger. So turn with me to chapter 24, the beginning of the sort of expanded section and you can see the summary here at the beginning of chapter 24 of what the Lord is doing here. It says, See, the Lord is going to lay waste the earth and devastate it. He will ruin its face and scatter its inhabitants. It will be the same. For priest as for people, for master as for servant, for mistress as for maid, for seller as for buyer, for borrower as for lender, for debtor as for creditor, the earth will be completely laid waste and totally plundered. The Lord has spoken this word. There's a summary of his judgment. That's him tearing down the proud, right? And what's the problem? Well, have a look in verse 5. The earth is defiled by its people. They have disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes and brought a lasting covenant. Therefore, a curse consumes the earth. Its people must bear their guilt. Therefore, earth's inhabitants are burned up. What's this everlasting covenant that all the people have broken? What's that a reference to? Well, that's actually a reference back to the days of Noah. You can flick back to Genesis chapter 9 and you can see this lived out. Genesis chapter 9, you know the story of Noah. God saves Noah and his family and representatives of all the animals through the ark, through the flood. They come out and then God makes a promise. He establishes what he calls in Genesis 9 an everlasting covenant with Noah and his family and in fact all living creatures. What's that? eternal promise or covenant it's that he will never again destroy the world by flood in the same sort of way however it's a covenant that has various stipulations involved with it and you might not be as familiar with those stipulations have a look in Genesis chapter 9 verse 5 the Lord says and for your lifeblood I will surely demand an accounting I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each man too. I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God 
has God created man? Here is God's expectation. If you take another human being's life, then you should expect that your life will be taken. Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed. And that's when you then think about what was going on in the 8th century BC. That's exactly what happens. When you read through these prophecies, it's awful. These prophecies are awful in terms of the things that are going to happen to all of these nations. And it's going to happen to them from others of these nations. As the nations were violent towards each other, they received back on themselves violence. The Lord hands them over to their sin, to their refusal of his word and his way. And they reap the consequences back in their own experience. That's how the Lord was working out his judgment in this particular place. And in a way, this is us. In our own quiet way, we've rejected his word and his way. We render ourselves liable for his sort of judgment. And that brings me, you say, what has any of this got to do with Easter? That's how we get to the first wonder of Easter. I said Easter, remember, is about judgment. Because what happens there on Good Friday is that Jesus, the man, dies at the hand of fellow man. But Jesus had not shed another person's blood and yet his blood is shed. And yet what does the Bible tell us? The wonder of that first Easter is that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. He bore my guilt on his shoulders on that first Good Friday. He bore their guilt on his shoulders on that first Good All their blood guilt was upon him and his blood was shed. The New Testament puts it in lots of different ways. It talks about in Philippians 2 about Jesus humbled himself even to death on a cross. The irony of the way that he he humbled himself for our arrogance. His life was shed in my place. If you've got your Bible there, have a look in Isaiah 13. There's a verse here that I think sheds light on that first Good Friday for us. Isaiah chapter 13. I read it out before, verses 10 and 11. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Anything there, just if you know the Easter story about Jesus' death on that first Good Friday, anything there ring a bell? the rising sun will be darkened. According to Luke's account in uh, Luke chapter 23, as Jesus was hanging on the cross between, we're told, the sixth hour and the ninth hour, that is between 12 noon and 3pm, the sun was darkened for three hours. The rising sun will be darkened. And what's the very next verse there in Isaiah chapter 13? What's God doing? I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. As the Lord punishes the sins of the world there in his son Jesus, 
the sun is darkened. There's the fulfilment of that word, that prophecy in Isaiah 13. And yet throughout these oracles, there's not just judgment, there's very significant hope. And let me just point out a couple to you. In the middle of the prophecy against Moab in chapter 16, chapter 16 verse 5, in the middle of this prophecy is this word of hope. Verse 5, in love a throne will be established, in faithfulness a man will sit on it, one from the house of David, one who in judging seeks justice and speeds the cause of righteousness. That God in love is going to re-establish King David's throne and from there rule with justice instead of violence, righteousness instead of wickedness. One from King David's line re-establish that throne. Or again, if you jump forward to chapter 19 in the middle of the prophecy against Egypt, we're told there, verse 19, in that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart of Egypt and a monument to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and witness to the Lord Almighty in the land of Egypt. That's a reference to something that had happened earlier in Israel's history back in Joshua chapter 22. When the Israelites first came into the promised land, some of them had land on the other side of the Jordan River, but they were worried that the rest of the tribes of Israel on the other side of the river might one day go, you guys don't really belong to us. So what they did was they built a replica of the the altar that was established in the land. They built a replica and a pillar at the border as a sort of sign of saying, we belong to you guys as well. Because look, we've got a copy of the altar that's in the promised land. And now what we've been told is, actually God's plans for hope is that even in Egypt, right down here, in pagan Egypt, there'll be an altar to the Lord and a pillar at its border. In fact, if you read on the next couple of verses, if you jump down to say verse 23, in that day there'll be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, Egypt all the way down here, all the way across, there'll be a highway. Why? Why are they building you know, the M7 or whatever? <laughs> what are they doing here? There'll be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt, the Egypts will go to Assyria, the Egyptians and the Assyrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. They're all going to be worshipping the Lord. You start to see that the plans here are huge. It's not just that God will bring judgment. It's actually God is going to bring everyone to a knowledge of himself across all of these nations. And then it gets even bigger. You get to chapter 24 to 27, flick to chapter 25. God goes global. Verse 6 of chapter 25, one of my favourite passages of the Bible. On this mountain, talking about Jerusalem, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death Forever, The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. What's God's great promise here is actually 
he's actually not just going to rule with justice, he's going to take away the very problem of death and, by implication, sin that caused it. There'll be no more blood guilt, there'll be no more shedding of blood. The Lord's going to take away even death itself. That's how good are his plans and promises. And this is why Easter is about singing. Because Easter is not just about that Jesus was judged for us, it's about that for one particular person in human history, we can say definitively that that shroud of death was scrunched up and chucked away and they rose from the grave. That was for Jesus of Nazareth on that first Easter Sunday. Death was swallowed up in victory for him. And what's the promises of the New Testament when it reflects on Jesus' resurrection? It's, it wasn't alone. He is the first fruits of a great harvest to come, that everyone who puts their faith in him will rise like him too and the Lord will take that shroud from all. If you're a Christian person and you've put your faith in Jesus, that's your future, isn't it? Do you believe that? That one day you will rise from the grave because you're part of that mighty harvest that comes after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus that first day today. And when you really get that, when you go, wow, God's even going to take away my death, what can you do but sing? Because that's exactly what happens in Isaiah 25. Here is the song that you will sing on the day of your resurrection. Here it is. Verse 9. In that day they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in Him and He saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in Him. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. Because let me tell you, when He raises you from the grave on that final day and you are suddenly alive again in a new resurrection body staring the Lord Jesus in the face, you know what? You'll go, surely this is our God. We trusted in Him and He saved us. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. And we will sing it and we will sing it and we will sing it and we won't want to stop singing it because it's just so gloriously true and we will just... Because and he saved us. It's my, one of my favourite passages in the Bible and last year at annual conference when we were talking about the resurrection I'd said to the EUs beforehand, hey, it'd be great if someone could actually put it to music and we, sing, and we did. We, uh, Gus put it to music and we actually sang it together and it's awesome and if you go to the... EU Ancon Facebook page and scroll down a couple of posts. There it is. You can listen to it. I, I think you this Easter. Because remember, Easter is about that he who humbled himself and was judged in our place. But it's also about singing because of the salvation we will have even from death itself. So I hope this Easter you have a great rest but actually you, you, that you are spiritually renewed refreshed in the light of what he's done. Thanks, Rowan. Um, before I pray, um, a couple of things. If it's your first time here, there'll be someone at the door who can hand you a welcome pack on your way out. Um, we'd love to greet you in that way. Afternoon, t- afternoon tea will be across there at the um, Law Lawns and it'd be great to meet you there. But just want to pray with me. 
Lord, your global mission knows no bounds. Help us not to be arrogant and show pride in the way we relate to you, the Lord of our lives. You lift up the humble and oppose the proud. A Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. Surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Amen.